Good morning. The scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus. I'll be reading from chapters 12, 31 to 42, and 14, verses 5 to 14 and 12 to 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses and Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the, Israelites people lived, the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the ch other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Piharoth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the, the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, 
with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. None, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground and a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just a reminder that after the sermon, we'll take a few moments for Q&A, a chance for you to ask questions about the sermon, about how to live in light of God's word. And so uh, feel free to jot those down and we'll share that time together in just a few moments. But first, let's pray and let's ask for God's help. God, we are expectant of you. And we need you. We need you to come near to us now through your word. And I pray that you would enliven not only our minds, but our hearts. Speak to us. Change us. Move within us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's one of the greatest stories, true stories, that's ever been told. And it's repeated and cherished by generation of generations of Christian and Jewish families across 3,000 years. It's a story so powerful and captivating that 19th century slave owners used to rip these very pages out of their Bibles to make sure that their enslaved workers didn't start longing for their own liberation. It teaches us soaring truths about the salvation of God, and it's littered with little lessons at almost every turn in the narrative. This is the story of the Exodus, the Israelites' departure and deliverance out of bondage in Egypt, and there's almost no way that we're going to be able to do it justice, but with God's help, we're going to try. Everyone in Egypt was awake that night. Blood-curdling screams, 
pierced the darkness as each Egyptian family, one by one, lit their lamps to discover that their firstborn child had died. Not even Pharaoh would be spared. Indeed, he was the primary target. Nine horrific plagues weren't enough to pry open his grip on the enslaved Israelites, but this one, this one was too much. Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, Pharaoh screamed at Moses and Aaron. Go worship the Lord. The exodus, after all, was not only freedom from oppression, but freedom for worship, knowing and serving and delighting in God. And then, somewhat pitifully, Pharaoh slips in a little request, and also bless me, to the bitter end, even in defeat, maybe especially in defeat, self-centeredness seeks its own gain. Narcissism dies hard. Pharaoh was chastened, yet proud. The rest of the Egyptians were just straight terrified. And they urged the Israelites to, please hurry, please leave quickly here. Here, let me pack your bags and come on, get out of here. Nice knowing you, thank you, hurry. Not knowing what else God might do, this God that had just flexed his power over life and death. The Israelites, they made most of this moment. On their way out, they unapologetically asked the Egyptians for their silver and gold and clothing. Uh, can you, you know, give us all of it? And amazingly, God did exactly what he in chapter 3 said he was going to do. He made the Egyptians not annoyed or offended, but favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave the Israelites everything they asked for, silver and gold and clothes. Tertullian in the third century explained that these former slaves were simply claiming just compensation for centuries of unpaid labor. They were paid what they were due at last. And after centuries of being plundered themselves, we're told they plundered the Egyptians. That's biblical language plundering, often used to describe a conquering king. See, for the first time in their lives that night, little Israelite boys and girls saw their dads and moms served like kings and queens. And so they began their perilous journey out of Egypt in the middle of the night. There were about 600,000 men, not counting the women and children, a humongous crowd. God was saving a people for himself, a family just of individuals. The life of God and the gospel expressed in community. And many other people, including some Egyptians, also went up with them. An ethnic, ethnically mixed multitude, God's many-colored people. Together, they had to hurry, of course, so much so that they could only pack unleavened bread. 
No time for the dough to rise. Because sometimes following God requires us to hurry. Sometimes obedience means running away from injustice or from toxicity, from pain. God does call us to endure all kinds of hardship, but sometimes God also calls us to flee. And flee they did. After 430 years in Egypt. That's a long time waiting, isn't it? Some of you have been waiting on God for a long time. Beloved, God has not forgotten you. Thank you. We're told they marched out boldly, journeying from Ramses to Succoth and onward. Maybe it was better that they didn't have Google Maps that day. They might have noticed, they might have noticed there was actually a shorter route they could have taken. Shorter, but more dangerous. See, sometimes God takes us on the longer path, even when we're mad at him for it, because he knows the quicker one, though quicker, would be more than we could have handled. And did you know that sometimes God deliberately brings us to a dead end, the Red Sea, in order that we might learn to trust him, be set free, and see his glory? Now let me tell you what happened at that sea. When the Israelites were halfway out of town, surprise, surprise, Pharaoh changed his mind. You see, sin and evil are fickle and relentless. He got his army together, along with 600 of the best chariots. That's his special forces, right? And they chased after the Israelites, chasing and, and chasing until finally, oh no, oh no, they caught up with them. The Israelites could hear the, the sound of the galloping horses getting louder and louder, and the chariots and the troops' swords and, and spears glinted in the moonlight. The Israelites' worst nightmare growing brighter and brighter by the minute. Can you imagine how, how terrified they must have been? This is how it all ends. Cornered with their backs up against the deep waters of the Red Sea and the most powerful army in the world coming towards them. And not only did they begin to panic, they did what I would have done, look for someone to blame. What kind of rescue is this, Moses? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Besides, slavery was kind of nice. Listen, fear makes us delusional. Pain makes us nearsighted. Already the Israelites had forgotten the plagues, the God of the plagues. They had forgotten the power of God. Don't be afraid, Moses told them. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Someone needs to write those words down today and put it on your wall this week. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. 
And fight God did. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night a most amazing thing happened. God sent a strong wind blowing and blowing to drive the sea back and to divide the waters. Let's be clear. It was no less unbelievable for the Israelites what happened than it is for us today. God paved a road of rescue right down the middle of the sea with a massive wall of water on the right and on the left. I don't know if the people hesitated, uh, you go first, (laughs) or if they just ran right in. But before you knew it, God was stalling the Egyptians, throwing the army into confusion, jamming the wheels of the chariots, as the hundreds of thousands of Israelites began hustling down this hallway of salvation, walking through the sea on dry ground. Until finally, at daybreak, with the sun slowly beginning to rise, the last child of Israel finally stepped up onto the shore on the other side. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea one more time and suddenly, without warning, the walls of water on the right and on the left roared back into place, crashing down on the heads of the Egyptian troops who were in hot pursuit of the Israelites. The road of salvation became a watery grave for the chariots and horsemen, and not one of them survived. You can imagine at first the the stunned silence of God's people, his rescued people, as they trembled before the Lord, what just happened? And as they watched this dramatic climax from the shore, silence, then suddenly, a shout of victory, the roar of cheers, the hugs and the tears of relief, and the voices of million former slaves bursting forth in songs of praise. And with the sun rising upon them, they danced. This is the story of the Exodus. And in our remaining time, I want to lay out before us three vitally important themes that emerge from the narrative. Lessons that reveal to us the nature of the salvation that God offers, not only to his people back then, but even to his people today, you and me. Three themes, and they are the promise of freedom, the centrality of faith, and the God of the impossible. First, the promise of freedom. According to the Christian tradition, in many ways different from that of other religions in the world, salvation is an offer of emancipation. As Galatians 5 tells us plainly and clearly, 
It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Friends, do you want to be free? You know, sometimes we can tend to approach God as if he were only offering us a, you know, something like a little bit of spiritual Gatorade, right? Something to quench a little bit of our spiritual thirst from time to time. Something to give us a little relief or refreshment or a little boost. But the Bible tells us something radically different. God rescues his people from certain slavery to sin and death. This is a promise of spiritual freedom. God offers us freedom from the enslaving power of guilt. He doesn't condemn us, but he actually forgives us our sins in his love. He offers us freedom from the enslaving burden of feeling like you need to prove your worth to God interminably, working harder and harder without ceasing. He offers us freedom from our debilitating fears. God has power over the the pharaohs in our lives that threaten to harm us. And he's already begun to disarm the powers of evil. We can can almost begin to see them already lying dead on the shore, as it were. Spiritual freedom. And he does this, of course, through Jesus, which the New Testament describes as the true Passover lamb. See, on the cross, Jesus became the bloody sacrifice, the the surrogate firstborn, our substitute. Jesus was the ransom and the redemption price that paid for the emancipation of God's people. We remember this when we partake in the Passover, even today, now called the Lord's Supper. Jesus bore the flood of God's wrath and judgment for our sins. Jesus was, in effect, drowned to death in our place so that we could pass through God's judgment into safety and salvation. Hallelujah. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea to make a way. Jesus stretched out his hands on the cross to become the way, the truth, and the life. Perhaps it shouldn't surprise us then that in Luke 9, Jesus called what he would accomplish in Jerusalem, my exodus. But the exodus is a promise not only of spiritual freedom, but also of material freedom. Freedom from structures of uh, oppression, from the bondage of poverty, and even from real-life human slavery. Here's a a promise of physical, even cosmic, exodus. This is what Christ promises to establish in fullness when he returns one day. This future day that's written about in Romans 8 when, when we're told that all of creation will be liberated emancipated from its bondage to decay, when evil itself will be destroyed forever, when death itself 
will one day be defeated. And when the devil and his armies will be swallowed up in the waters of judgment, a lake waters a lake of fire. And there will never again be tears or pain or dying or suffering or injustice or tyranny or bondage. We're waiting for that day, and that day is coming soon, and God calls us to live very much in light of it even today. Which is why Jesus in Luke 4 himself preached from Isaiah 61, announcing the inauguration right then and there of his kingdom ministry. He said, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoners, to comfort all who mourn. And this is why authors Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson wrote these words in their very good book, Echoes of Exodus. We live, we live as those who have been recently been released from centuries of oppression, that is, in Christ, with a preferential option for the poor and a commitment to champion the cause of those who have been abused, bullied, captured, disenfranchised, enslaved, forgotten, ghettoized, hated, ignored, judged, killed, lynched, marginalized, and so on through the alphabet. Exodus people know what it is to be ground into the dust by those with power. So whenever we see it happening to others, racial minorities, slaves, trafficked women, the poor, unborn children, refugees, the homeless, those with disabilities, sojourners, orphans, widows, we act, we march, we speak, we pray, we invite, we give, we use our powers, these brothers wrote, to serve the interests of those without it. Because the exodus was never just for us. Free people, free people. And so we must give our neighbors glimpses of that future day, that material day of freedom, the fullness of freedom, both spiritual and physical, and labor and love, even now. Here is, in the Exodus, the promise of freedom. Secondly, we find here this theme of the necessity of faith. All throughout this passage, this wonderful story, again and again, we see and hear this call to faith, to put trust in God. To believe first and foremost in God's promises and to trust that he keeps his promises. If you've been following with us the story of the Exodus, you'll remember that this moment here is a, is a fulfillment of all that God already promised he would do in Exodus 3, in the story of the burning bush, when God said he would indeed deliver his people, setting them free. But of course, his promise predates even that. Going back 400 years, in his conversation with Abraham, when he cut his covenant and made a promise in Genesis 15, he said, your descendants will be enslaved and mistreated, 
but I'm going to judge the nation that held them in bondage, and they will come out with great possessions. God keeps his promises. That's not a question. The only question that remains is, will you believe him? Will you trust him? An invitation to faith. And check out faith here. Who's going to walk down this hallway of a towering wall of water on either side? I imagine there were some who were tempted to run the other way, maybe even to take up arms and dare to fight the Egyptians themselves. You know, that was an option. God's invitation was for the people of God to trust him, to trust in his care and his provision, to believe in his promise, and to walk by faith, to know that God is the one that needed to do the fighting. You only need to be still. Notice, being still didn't mean don't move. They had to walk. Being still is a disposition of heart where there's not still a fighting spirit, a self-fulfilling spirit, a self-reliant spirit that says, it's all up to me. Christian salvation invites you to lay down your arms, to say, there's no way I can do this on my own. Save myself, rescue myself, atone for myself, make myself somebody. God alone can do that. God alone has done that in Christ for me. Will you trust in him like that and walk down that road on dry ground? And don't forget, though, notice in the passage that even weak faith did the job. This isn't a call to the perfect kind of faith that not any one of us ever has. The person that had strong faith was sort of sauntering down through the walls of water, maybe even banging it with their shoulder, cocky as it were. And the person that was trembling maybe even dragging themselves by their knees, staring at the water the entire time, looking for any moment when it might come down. All of them were saved the same. Because in Christ, we're saved. Strong faith, weak faith, saved not by the quality of the faith, but by the object of our faith, our God, our Savior Christ, who makes a way. Will you trust in him and trust that he will fight for you as he fought for you on the cross and fights for you even still? You only need to be still. Some of you feel like you're walking today through towering walls of water waiting for them to crash down on you any second. Beloved, trust the Lord. Put your trust in him. And finally, the God of the impossible. I wonder if this story is so familiar to you, to me, that we've lost sight of its wonder and power. Maybe even if you're a child, you've already heard it so many times. Maybe if you're a grown-up, 
Even if you haven't been in the church for very long, you've heard countless versions of this told. It's familiar, maybe bland, maybe ordinary. But I invite you to consider one of the strongest features of this story, and that is this. It's just impossible. Everything about this story is literally unbelievable. Emerging from it, if we take it for what it's trying to tell us, is a God who is able, who is mighty to save with his strong right arm, a God who does the impossible. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord fights, does, overcome. Impossible was the point. Have you given up on, abandoned hope for, dismissed as impossible, something in your life or in this world? What is it? And will you bring that thing, that person, that relationship, that circumstance, that burden, that need, those clutches, those chains, bring it to God, who in the story of Exodus tells us that nothing is impossible for him. On many days, it might seem impossible that God could forgive me, that his mercy might run out. On many days, it might seem impossible that you can break free of that addiction. Maybe it seems impossible that that relationship can ever be repaired. Or it seems impossible that the pain will ever cease or the clouds of darkness and depression will ever part. It seems impossible that evil and oppression and injustice will ever come to an end. But beloved, don't you see? These things don't just seem impossible. They actually are impossible, unsolvable, irresolvable by you and me and the measly power that we wield against them. But in the words of Jesus, the Lamb of God, what's impossible with us is possible with God. Because it was impossible that Pharaoh would ever let God's people go. It was impossible that his army could ever be defeated by a ragtag bunch of slaves. It was impossible that the walls of water on the right and the left would actually hold up long enough for all the people to get through. It was impossible that God's people would walk on dry ground. Don't you see, friends? The exodus was impossible. Christ was impossible. His saving death was impossible. His resurrection was impossible. His love for you, impossible. Impossible to break. Behold the exodus. Behold your God. So will you open wide your lives? And let this be not just a story in a book, but a story that draws you in, one that grants you freedom that you never dared hope for. 
one that invites you into a life of faith that you never dreamed possible, and a life with a God whose business it is to do what only He can do, flexing His grace and His mighty arm, His wonder, saving people like you and me, even rescuing this world. Friends, behold the exodus. Behold your God. Let's pray. We want to see you, Lord. We want to see you as you've shown yourself, presented yourself to us in this passage. So give us grace, eyes to see, hearts to receive, and lives to obey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.